will not be involved in this. I'm not going to. It's a week of walkouts and racially offensive signs. Ignoring this problem is not going to make it go away. Masks go on trial this week, and we get our first snapshot of what no jab, no job policies mean for our area employers. And get ready to pay more at the pump as Missouri's new gas tax finally kicks in. I travel quite a bit for work, so I think the added uh, money that I'm going to be spending per week is going to be pretty significant. Those stories and the rest of the week's news straight ahead. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of AARP Kansas City, Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gorley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome, I'm Nick Haynes. We're taking you around the metro over the next 30 minutes, poking our heads through the corridors of power in the hallways of schools and the corridors of our local hospitals. With a compass in hand and their hiking boots on, ready for the journey is Dear Wall, KSHB anchor, reporter and author. We'll get into that a little bit later. Dave Helling has written enough words to fill a library. He's with your Kansas City star. Cal Palmer tracks Johnson County as a reporter and managing editor of the Shawnee Mission Post and always on call from the Cole newspaper reporter and editor Eric Wesson. You know, it has been one of those really tiring weeks where many of us may just want to reach for a drink. That's not exactly what I had in mind, but let's roll with it. It is now October, after all, and in what might be a first for an outdoor event in Kansas City, organizers of this week's Oktoberfest at Crown Center are requiring proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test to get in. What's curious is that there were close to 80,000 Chiefs fans at Arrowhead Stadium on Sunday, and no masks or vaccines were required. So what is the difference, dear Wall? Leadership, ownership, who wants to make the call, right? I think... Uh... I know tons of season ticket holders who have decided, you know, they may sit the season out just because you can't take the chance. You can if you choose to, but not everybody wants to. So that's really the only difference. I did see, Eric Wesson, that the organizers of Oktoberfest said, quote, we're doing this because we want to make sure uh, we're keeping in with the wellness concerns of our staff, our volunteers and our vendors. So does that mean the Chiefs are not as concerned about the people who are dispensing the beer and the food and the hot dogs over at Arrowhead Stadium? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but it is kind of confusing. You have to have a mask to go in a, in a restaurant in Jackson County, but you don't have a, have a mask to go tailgating or go out to the stadium. Now, this week was the deadline to get vaccinated if you wanted to keep your job at Truman Medical Center. Truman is the first big employer in our metro to require the job as a condition of employment. So what happened? Well, we now know that rather than lift up their shirt sleeves, 39 employees chose to resign. But with more than 4,000 employees at the Truman Medical Center system, were administrators relieved they didn't lose a lot more than that, Dave? Uh, most health care uh, companies, hospitals, health care providers have had similar rates of compliance with one or two exceptions. Generally speaking, for private uh, companies, compliance with the vaccine has actually been pretty high. The biggest pushback has come from public employees, uh, firefighters, police officers, this again across the country. Well, Truman, that 39 employees is a, 
right at or just under 1% of their staff. Look, I think people knew this was coming. I think a lot of folks have had time to kind of wrap their minds around, okay, if I want to continue to be employed in a hospital or maybe some of these school districts, I'm going to have to get the vaccine. But I do think Dave is exactly right. We have had no calls from a private company out there saying that they have mass amounts of employees trying to walk out because they're being asked to get the vaccine. But I did see, though, over in Kansas, the Shawnee Mission School District has been toying with this vaccination requirement for all staff. But this week, the district announced now is not the time. Why are there worried everyone is going to leave? The now is not the time quote that you referenced. That was from a board member at Monday night's meeting. They expressed worries that, you know, um, Making a vaccine required might drive some teachers and, and administrators away from the district um, and also classified staff as well. We're talking about lunch workers, custodians, uh, classroom aides, that sort of thing. Well, I saw it in one of the stories that you had about this this week. 25% of substitute teachers were vaccinated in the district and only 12% of bus drivers are vaccinated. W was that a printing error? That is a distressing number considering these individuals do um, interact with students on a daily basis. I think the broader point about staffing shortages that you're making, though, is that um, this is something that SMSD and all other districts have been dealing with for over a year now. Um, in Shawnee Mission, there's just a historic wave of early retirements and teachers quitting last fall, and the district has not fully recovered from that. So I think district leaders at this time are making the calculation that if they impose a vaccine, vaccine mandate that could just be another pressure point for staff members to walk away. While vaccine requirements continue to be a flashpoint on both sides of state line, we can't forget we haven't stopped arguing over masks either. Should your child or grandchild be required to wear a mask while they're at school? It's a question that was tested in a Missouri courtroom this week. A circuit court judge was hearing arguments in a lawsuit filed by the Missouri Attorney General. Did masks win or did the Attorney General, Dave? Well, uh, it was a limited hearing, uh, Nick, but in essence, what the court told Attorney General Eric Schmidt is they could not uh, declare a class action in which he could, in essence, sue every district in the state to make sure that they don't require masks. And the court said, no, 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 for the districts that have required them, you need to sue them individually because every case is different. Districts have different rules, different triggering mechanisms. Not every district, of course, in Missouri, in fact, a, a vast majority do not have mask mandates. So it was a setback, but not a loss. And, and Eric Schmidt went right back to court to sue the Columbia School District uh, going forward. Er, er, um, um, uh, Kyle talked a little bit about all the retirements in at least one district, the Shawnee Mission District. That's happening all across the states and the country, in part because older teachers are worried about getting COVID and think, hey, maybe it's not worth sticking around for another two or three years of teaching when I could be potentially exposed to students. Remember, as of now, anyone uh, in elementary school is not eligible to get any vaccine, and that may be playing a role as well. To Dave's point, I will also jump in and say that my mom is a retired teacher. And that's a calculation that a lot of people had to make privately. And she said, you know, I probably have three to five more years, but I don't want to risk getting sick. This lawsuit that was filed in the state of Missouri, of course, that affects those children there. They will still have those masks on, but it's also playing out on the Kansas side, too. And we, we do see that there was a parent in the Blue Valley School District who filed a lawsuit against the Johnson County mask mandate that required students to wear masks, and yet they withdrew that. Did they not feel they could win in court, Kyle? The lawyer representing the family said, um, and I, for their, their reason for withdrawing the lawsuit was, and I quote here, because the child was being, quote, subjected to vitriol, 
rumors and innuendo from bad actors, end quote, and so that they felt they didn't want to put the child through it. That was their reasoning. I will say just more broadly speaking, legal challenges against school mask rules and other COVID mitigation uh, measures in Johnson County schools have generally not been successful. We've had multiple lawsuits in multiple districts, and so far school mask rules have remained in place. One thing I don't like doing on this program is repeating the same topic week after week. But when two members of the Kansas City Council walk out over a vote to give a Canadian firm the right to run concessions at the new look KCI airport, does that warrant a little discussion? I will not be involved in this. I'm not going to be. All of the non-transparency, all of the secrets, all of the backroom meetings, that's exactly what's gone on here again. And this is a billion-dollar contract. And the response from Councilwoman Law's colleague on the council, Kevin O'Neill, this week was, quote, that's totally crap, end quote. Which is it, Dave? Well, as always, it's a little bit of both. It was inevitable that this would happen, Nick, after the selection committee uh, at the airport made its choice for a concession vendor because there's so much money at stake. And all of the bidders have lined up different supporters, and they're all lobbying the city council. It does look like the Vantage Airport Group proposal will be forwarded to the a full city council next week. They need seven votes to put this deal into place, and we'll see if they have. Now, there were some folks right here in our building and our viewers, Eric, who were flummoxed as to why the two council members here who walked out, which was Catherine Shields and Theresa Law, why didn't they just vote no? Why did they have to walk out? Can they just make their vote known? Yes, they could have. So the Oscar goes to <laughs> Theresa Law for the best performance by an elected official on a controversial issue. They did the same RFP process with Bernie Outlet Plaza. Nobody said anything about that. From a viewer point of view, though, dear, I mean, we can get look at all this process. And in fact, last week's program used the word rubric, I think, for the first time. Wow, these are words talking about very processy. But ultimately, don't we only want to see this really cool airport and have lots of selections of restaurants and shops? How much does the public care about all of the sausage being made here? The public doesn't care about the sausage being made, but the public does care that there are going to be local businesses represented. The public does care that the city is doing right by them and their tax money. So I think that's the feedback. We're kind of in this climate where raising the question does create this cloud of, oh, they must be doing something shady, right? So we've seen the same thing happen with vaccines. We've seen the same thing happen with masking mandates, COVID mitigation strategies. The minute somebody raises a flag and says, even if their logic isn't 100% accurate or fair, then all of a sudden the entire process is under scrutiny. Don't we want our elected representatives to ask tough questions when they're in a deliberative body, Dave? We do. Now, whether Teresa Lohr and to a certain extent Catherine Shields are asking the right questions remains in uh, an open uh, issue for debate, Nick. Lore and Shields walked away from the meeting yesterday trying to deny the committee a quorum to do business because they wanted to postpone consideration. That's why they left rather than vote no. Had they simply voted no, they would have lost the vote, and they knew that. That's why they walked out. You know, housing was also on the agenda at City Hall this week. The renters' advocacy group, Casey Tenants, has been demanding a meeting with the city manager to demand an audit of the city's rental assistance program. But they're also asking the city to impose a 2% cap on rent increases. A study earlier this year revealed that rent of one-bedroom apartments in Kansas City jumped 33%, the highest of any large city in America. I took a look and discovered there are close to 200 cities with some form of rent controls in place, including New York City. So why not here, dear Wall? New York is not Kansas City. Really and truly, we need to look at more comparable-sized cities 
talk about Cincinnati or maybe even a Denver when it was on the rise and see how they handled this issue. And I think it might get a little more traction. What, what would you think would happen then, Eric, if we did impose a 2% um, cap on increase in rental in Kansas City? Uh, then you would probably have a lot of people not invest in building uh, housing because they in their plan, they, they present a percentage of profit. And let me say this, one of the things and one of the backstories behind KC tenants is they think that rent should be free. They, their theme is people over profits. So as a landlord or a property owner, I'm not supposed to make any money off of building a, a, a housing development. I'm supposed to break even and ride off into the sunset, but that's not how society works and that's not how businesses work. So if they were to do that, you'd probably see a lot more uh, housing issues in Kansas City than we have right now. And we always hear about this, of course, as a Kansas City, Missouri problem, a Kansas City, Missouri problem. But Kyle Palmer in the Shawnee Mission Post this week, you report that more than one in 10 renters now in Johnson County are behind on their rent payments. So this is something that's happening there, too. The numbers come from a, late, uh, from a study by a nonprofit linked to the Harvard School of Public Health. Those numbers are pretty stark, as you said, um, more than 8,000 renting households in Johnson County, making up about 10 percent, maybe 12 percent of the total in the county. Owe a collective $32 million in unpaid rent that is stacked up over the course of the pandemic. Um, I, I will say, you know, linking it to the conversation about Kansas City, there is no KC tenants version in Johnson County, though I will say KC tenants has uh, rallied and protested in Johnson County because some of the landlords <laughs> whose properties they want improved in Kansas City live in Johnson County in places like Mission Hill. So they have been here before, but there is not an organizing force in Johnson County here to represent the voices of renters. And of course, Johnson County has for decades kind of been built on this notion, the bedrock of a single family home moving out to the suburbs. That is creating very clear tensions in a lot of communities in Johnson County as there is more of a push to find affordable, more diverse housing, like apartments, duplexes, condos. And so that is kind of challenging the notion of what many people think has made Johnson County what it is. So no Johnson County uh, tenants group chaining themselves to courtroom doors in Johnson County then? Not yet. Not yet, no. exactly right. Look forward to KC tenants being uh, Prairie Village tenants association. <laughs> it's, it's not out of the realm hey, of possibility. I'll say that much for sure. Great, they got a seat at the table at City Hall. The mayor pays attention to them. They were very aggressive in their approach, and it worked. They they get a lot of publicity with it. Yeah, and I just saw in quickly, Nick. The reason you see more activity on the Kansas City, Missouri side is more people rent in Kansas City, Missouri. I mean, that half of the people living in Kansas City rent their housing. That quite that isn't quite the case in Johnson County. If it ever got to that point, I think you'd see more activity. Last week, Park Hill High School was making national news after a student launches an online petition calling for the return of slavery. This week, it's two schools in Johnson County hitting the headlines over a poster for a homecoming dance. A student at Olathe House South High School asks out a girl at St. James Academy with a sign saying, if I was black, I would be picking cotton, but I'm white, so I'm picking you for Hoco. The poster sparks a critical response from Mayor Quinton Lucas. It is abundantly clear that rather than removing race from education, we need critically to empower our students to fight and call out racism. By the way, these were both Kansas students here. Why was it left to the mayor of Kansas City to weigh in on that? Did elected leaders in Johnson County not feel it was their place to speak out publicly, Kyle? 
but I will say I did not see any of them speak out against this. I will say this is very much an issue in some of the campaigns we're covering right now. I mean, just last night while we're taping this, we did a candidate forum in the DeSoto School District, USD 232. Some candidates think the district does need to confront these issues like race and white privilege and white supremacy uh, more directly. And other candidates kind of trying to walk this line of saying, well, yes, we agree with diversity. Let's all get along and be unified, but we don't want any curriculum that is dividing our students as is the way that they would put it. You know, we have lots of social media condemnations, dear Wall, but is there any policy changes being proposed or are schools got enough on their plates? Uh, we've gone through a pandemic year of COVID learning loss. They can't even get food service workers. They can't even feed the kids. They can't even get the kids to school from buses. You know, now we have a racial component on top of that. How much can schools actually do? They can do more than they're doing now. Um, we got an announcement this week. Oh, we're going to go hire an expert on racism. It's 2021. So the issue, and y'all are going to hear me for a minute on this, okay? I'm a mother of two Black children. I'm wife to a Black husband, okay? My children deserve the same safety, the same open, welcoming environment that every other child has. The problem is we keep wanting to find some cushy, cozy, comfortable way to address race. That's not going to happen. And until we have the same attitude toward racism, teachers dropping racial slurs, we got a new one just last night. Until we have the same attitude about that, that we do other forms of harm, it's gonna continue to happen. Because it is obvious when we have high school kids who think it's funny to write about, if I was black, I'd be picking cotton on a homecoming site at a celebratory time, when we think, that this is not going to keep happening. We are fooling ourselves. And I just would compel our community to buckle up. Treat this the way you treat all kinds of harm against all children because it's not right and it's deeply hurtful and I'm tired of it. Do you think, though, Eric Wesson, that these students in the Olathe uh, High School there, the Olathe South, is that something they learned at school or is that something you learn at home? And are we taking the parents off the hook here and putting too much onus on the on the schools themselves to fix. I, I agree 100% with you, Nick. I think that it starts at home and then it filters out from there because if they, and I'm just thinking, I don't know where they made the sign at, but as a parent, my child has got a, a writing pad and a board and he's writing something and gluing something on it. As a parent, I want to see what that is and then to come out and have it go viral is that, at that. And it just goes back to how divided we've become over the last five years over race relations in our uh, education system. Nobody wants to talk about it. Let's sweep it under the rug and hope that it takes care of itself and goes away. Aren't our schools, though, feeling the squeeze from our state lawmakers on this question, where we have heard the, we talked about it on this program very recently about critical race theory, and there is a, a renewed scrutiny on school districts not to get engaged in issues of race at this point in time, and, and they're being held account by state lawmakers. They oppose any mention of race in the classroom. It doesn't have anything to do just with a theory or just with what happened. And I know that because I've written about it and I've gotten calls and emails from people saying, no, we shouldn't even bring up slavery uh, in our classrooms because it's divisive. I wrote a column about Thomas Jefferson, who owned slaves. And he, of course, wrote 
that all men are created equal. Well, I got all kinds of pushback from Derek Schmidt, who's the attorney general of Kansas, who wanted to run an op-ed in the Star saying, oh, no, that's not what's involved at all. Pushing back on that uh, non-controversial fact that Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. And, and so it's all caught up in all of that. And that's why what happened this week isn't a surprise. If you buy gas in Missouri, you may notice a bump in prices at the pump this week. A new 12-cent hike in the Missouri gas tax has now officially kicked in. But Missouri lawmakers decided to phase in the increase. So this week, you'll only have to pay about an extra 2.5 cents a gallon. By the way, there is a way for you to avoid paying the extra tax altogether. Under the new law, you can get a 100% rebate if you keep your receipts. I did try to look that up this week, and I couldn't find any place where I could submit my receipts to the state. Have they not come up with that form yet? And uh, is are they just banking on the fact that most people won't bother to do this, Eric? Is that the deal? <laughs> that is definitely the deal. Who wants to ride around in a car full of receipts? <laughs> they get under your seat. Uh, you vacuum them up when you're cleaning out your car. You say, oh, what the heck, and just bottle it up and throw it away. Yeah, that's their theory. It's but for, not- for about 20 bucks, right, Eric? I mean, that's yeah. what you get back. <laughs> yeah. Who wants to do that? But I am interested, Carl. I know a lot of people on, on the Kansas side go over to Missouri to take advantage of the cheap gas tax prices <laughs> because they have the second lowest in the country after uh, Alaska. So people like to fill up on the Missouri side. And, and by the way, Kansans will also be able to take advantage of this rebate program. But by the time this tax increase goes into fully effect by 2025, Kansas will actually be a lot cheaper than Missouri. I will say, just someone who lives right on the border, I... I am very uh, routinized in where I go get gas. It's just part of my routine. I go to the same place. I don't necessarily pay attention to the to the prices. I know some people do, but I'm not sure this has too much of an effect. Yes, <laughs> but I will say, that remembering what this is about is $500 million a year is what they want, Dave Helling, to fix our roads and bridges. And so however painful it is to pay more at the pump, don't we also like smoother and better roads? Well, that's the argument that uh, Governor Mike Parson and others have made. The Chamber of Commerce, other people in Missouri have said, yeah, we need to fix the roads and bridges, primarily in rural areas, I must say, the, the, where, where the tax base is smaller. There is an issue, Nick, and I'll just throw this in quickly, about driving across state lines still to purchase food in Missouri. Kansas fully uh, imposes a sales tax on food that Missouri does not. And it can mean savings over a year for some people of a couple of hundred bucks. That may be worth the trip, but for the, for the gas tax, probably not. Now, when you put a program like this together every week, you can't get to every big story making the headlines. What was the big story we missed? It's a week that sees the Chiefs drop to last place and health worries over Andy Reid. It's your last chance to see the Royals in action this year. The season finale is Sunday. After 14 months of delays, Missouri Medicaid finally expands. Sign-ups begin this week for close to 300,000 low-income Missourians. Some hospitals in Missouri now giving panic buttons to medical staff after a surge in violent attacks. Money Magazine names Overland Park the seventh best place to live in America. And surely not, Costco and a number of other stores limiting toilet paper again. Alrighty, dear Wall, did you pick one of those stories or something completely different? I picked something completely different. So I am a member of the board for the Junior League of Kansas City. Holiday Mart started today. It's a great time. Kick off the holiday season and support some of the great work the Junior League does. Eric Wesson. Uh, The Chiefs losing, uh, that was pretty shocking uh, to go through that again. And then Andy Reid, I guess they played so bad he got sick, had to uh, take him to the hospital, all those interceptions that 
uh, were thrown. So I, I said the Chiefs. Dave Helling. Two uh, notable uh, uh, people in our uh, region have passed away, Nick. Burdett Loomis, the University of Kansas political science professor, just an astonishingly good guy, mm-hmm. smart, helpful for reporters, known in the political community for four decades. He will be sorely missed. And uh, Jim Mathewson, the former uh, state senator in Missouri, uh, who was a leader at a different time and approached legislation in a different way. Uh, his like will not be seen soon again in Missouri. Let's pause to note the passing of both of those. Men. Thank you for that. And uh, Kyle Palmer. Uh, I'd just like to spotlight a story we published last week about a place called Kenilworth Apartments in Prairie Village. We got some elderly residents at that place telling us that they feel pushed out by the new owners who've come in and and launched a pretty major renovation of the complex, Uh, talking about people in their 70s and 80s who felt like they, you know, can't find a new home in that quick of a time. So anyway, since publishing that, we've gotten several more tips from residents at other complexes who say similar things are happening there. So uh, going back to our uh, conversation about housing and affordability could be just the tip of another story. And we will continue to track them. Thank you, Kyle. By the way, I'm surprised, dear, that you didn't mention as one of the big stories we missed was your new book. And it's interesting because you you had a big forum at the library about this. And I've known you for a while and we've done other projects together. I didn't know being an author was a big part of the vision you had for your future. Well, sort of and sort of. uh, So it's called The Unhappiest One. It's finding joy in my journey to purpose. I call it a sort of memoir because it's not really that. It's just 15 people, places, and experiences that have taught me meaningful lessons about joy and fulfillment. So you can get in anywhere. People will look at you and think you're living the dream. And rather than calling it what you have, you should have been calling it the chosen one. I mean, you're a successful TV anchor. What's going on? You know, the truth of it is, I think if we've learned nothing over the last two years, is that people are dealing with a lot of private battles in their life. And I've experienced quite a bit of those things. You know, my father's addiction, um, some of the challenges when I was a young, enthusiastic and not as informed journalist. Um, It's my highlights. It's my lowlights. And it's really my love letter to folks who are going through a tough time. Uh, Why is it, by the way, that Dear Wall is the only author we have on this panel? You're all writing for a living here. Where where are these other books? You know, that's a great question. And uh, we could go through, and I'm sure Dave and Kyle, we could go through some of our notes and write three or four books. But after you write so much all day, the last thing you want to do is go home and write some more. So I've got a title for my memoir, Nick. Go on, then we're ready. And the title is Never Drink in a Bar Called the Dubliner with a Guy Named Mahoney. <laughs> <laughs> You'd read that book, okay. wouldn't you, dear? All right. oh, absolutely. I'd be first in line. All right. The book, by the way, for Dear Wall, again, is The Unhappiest One. You can get it at Made in KC and also at uh, online book retailers. Dear Wall, thanks for sharing your insights on the news on your life with us on Weekend Review. And our thanks to all our other panelists who, by the way, share their talent with us each week. Some people ask me how much they get paid. How about zero dollars? Thank you, Dave Helling of the Kansas City Star, to Kyle Palmer of the Shawnee Mission Post, and Eric Wesson uh, of The Call. And I'm Nick Haynes. From all of us here at Kansas City PBS, be well, keep calm, and carry on.